Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 9, we find something of the Lord Jesus Christ and why He came. And He declared it clearly, that the Son of Man is coming to seek and to save them that were lost. Reminded also of the sons of thunder, James and John, and how a Samaritan village did not want Jesus to come near that village. And so James and John went to Jesus and said, Would you like us to call down thunder and lightning upon them and burn them up? And Jesus said, You know not what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. This is what we find here in Jonah chapter 3 with the Ninevites. We find the grace of repentance. We find that God comes and He does a work in the hearts of men because ultimately repentance is of the Lord. It is called the grace of repentance because it is the working of the Holy Spirit in the soul of an individual in a sweet and a soft way that bends that man's will to do the will of God. And the men demonstrate that they have turned from their sin in their actions because their mind has been changed. Mind renewal, mind change is the work of the Holy Spirit, not the work of man. It is the work of the Spirit of God to change the mind of men and that entails a change of their actions. What follows from a mind renewal is an action renewal. A new direction, a new love, a new affection, new standard in an individual's life. That's what happens with repentance. Now, repentance. What is repentance? Repentance, metanoia, first and foremost, is the change of mind. That our minds are changed about a particular thing. And because the mind is changed in this matter... The actions then follow suit. My behavior changes as a result of my mind being changed towards a certain action or towards a certain object, no matter what it is. There is a change in the thinking. My mind has been renewed. I think differently about this particular thing. And then it is seen in the way that I live my life. Now, it's not perfect living. There is no perfect living perfectionism in the life of the believer. There's no practical perfection. Our life is always one of repentance, turning, growing constantly. Growing up, putting off, putting on daily. And so we find here uh, with the, uh, the Ninevites the wonder of the grace of repentance. God's grace. God is the one who does this work. He begins this work within the life of an individual. We see the wonder of God's grace in Scripture. Let me start right from the beginning. Adam and Eve, by the instigation of the devil and by willful disobedience, turned away from the Lord. Demonstrated a hatred in the heart towards God, turning away from the living God. Adam and Eve, Adam being the federal representative and as a public person 
representing as federal representation all of mankind. When Adam fell, we all fell in him. A consequence is this, we come into this world with a vicious nature. You parents know exactly what I'm talking about with your children. There is not one parent in here, and there is not one person in here who used to be a child and had parents or had authority raising them up that had to teach them to lie. That came natural. Why? Because that is the nature as we come into this world. We are infected with sin and we are under the wrath and curse of God and we have a rebellious nature. And so we must be taught the straight way. We must be taught what is right as opposed to what is wrong. We must be taught to tell the truth because we are not truth tellers by nature. By nature we are liars. We are deceivers. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in a wonder of grace changing an individual from being a God-hater to a lover of God. That is what theologically is called the ineffability of the work of the Spirit of God. It's beyond our ability to understand. How does it work? How does the Spirit move convincing men of sin? How does the Holy Spirit work in the heart? How does He convince me? How does He change my heart? So that in a sweet and a soft way, He does His work and doesn't violate the choices that I make, but bends it in such a way that not violating human nature, but bends it in such a way that I will to do the will of God, which I never would have done apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. How does He do that? I don't know. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. How does that happen? I don't know. He made me to see. How is it that I hated the gospel and now I love the gospel? How is it that I didn't want God in any of my thinking and now I I want God to fill all of my thinking? How does that happen? I don't know. I don't know how the Spirit does that. I only know that He does, he does that work. I know how He does the work with the Word. That's the means by which He does it. But how He works instrumentally in the heart, in the individual, it's beyond my comprehension. But that He does it is revealed in Scripture. Adam and Eve fled from God. They had at once walked with God in the cool of the garden. Now they fled from God. And it was the Lord who came to Adam and Eve. It was the Lord who came to them as they were hiding from Him, covering themselves with fig leaves, knowing that they were naked, they needed a covering before God. It is God who comes to them. They were not seeking the Lord. The Lord sought them. Now, don't think that God is not omniscient, beloved. You read passages and texts such as this, and the Lord said to Adam, where are you? And you immediately think, well, look, God doesn't know everything. He didn't know where Adam was. 
Now, you are then sacrificing all of the attributes of God for a particular text that you're not even understanding that narrative. God came to Adam. He knows where Adam is. He is the omnipresent one. All of creation is immediately in his presence. He encompasses all things. You've got to ask a different question. What is this that God is asking to Adam? Because I know that God knows where Adam is. He is eliciting a response from his creature. That Adam would come forth in confession. And this is what the Lord does. Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman that you gave me. To the woman, what have you done? The serpent, the serpent that you made, deceived me. And then the Lord brought the curse upon the man and the woman and upon the serpent. And God takes off the fig leaves and clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins. Beloved, if anything demonstrates salvation is of the Lord, it is right there in Genesis 3. Man has no ability to cover himself in an acceptable manner before the true and living God. God must clothe the sinner. And that is a foresignification, the animal skins of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God came to Adam and Eve. God came to Abraham, who used to be a worshiper of idols, and anybody that worships idols, that is doctrines of demons. That is demonic worship, beloved. Abraham was that. In the Ur of the Chaldees, the Lord called him out and changed him so that he became the father of many nations. And he was blessed. He was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. The Lord changed Sarah. The Lord changed Jacob. The Lord changed David and Moses. Think about Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of the church. The Lord came to him and changed him radically. So that one who once persecuted the church now is a lover of the church. Loves Christ. Loves the things of God. Understands them truly. What a wonder. The grace of repentance. The glory of God and the salvation of a sinner. We see this, beloved. We see this in our text this morning. You know about Jonah, the Lord coming to him again with the word and telling him to go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah goes. And whether, notice that he says three days and Nineveh, or in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Whether that was all of his message or a summarization of his message, it doesn't say. But Jonah comes to this great city. An extent... Three days. Now I've heard the arguments, well, three days doesn't mean that he, he walked around the whole city. It took him three days to do that. Um, rather, it was, you know, a, a diplomatic thing. He had to come and he had one thing to do on day one and something else to do. It doesn't say that. The extent of the city was a large city. And it took Jonah three particular days. And it might not have been, as we understand it, 24 hours. He wasn't walking 24 hours proclaiming the gospel. He had to rest. He's not superhuman. He's human as like unto we are. And so he probably rested, got something to eat, 
and went out and back at it the next day. And it took three days for Jonah to do it, and he declared 40 days in Nineveh, that great city, would be overthrown. And so, here he comes now, proclaiming this. And notice in our text, the word came to the king. You see, in verse 5, we find already that the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, I, I want you to think about that for a moment. Believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. You see, what Jonah proclaimed was God's message. It wasn't the message of his heart. It wasn't what he was feeling. It wasn't this I have on my heart I need to tell you. No, this is what God has said. And that is always the business of the preacher. It's not to tell people the things that they want to hear because they have itching ears, but to tell them the truth of God's Word. That is what we always need in beloved. We must believe God. There is a difference between believing about God and believing God. Now, you kids that are here, you've been taught in the Sunday school, you've been taught at home to believe things about God, and maybe that's all you're believing is things about God, but you're not believing God. To believe God is to believe His Word. What Scripture says, God says. What God says, Scripture says. We must believe God. This is what the people do. They proclaimed a fast. They don't even go to the king. They immediately were stricken in their heart because they believed the truth. Now, how does anybody believe God? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who cultivates the soil of the heart and prepares it for the seed. And when the seed of the word comes, it takes root in that individual's heart and then it germinates and it grows. And this is what was going on here with these people. And they immediately demonstrated that they believed God because they proclaimed a fast. Notice how the actions followed the changing of their mind. One day they could give care one that couldn't care less about a judgment of God, and now they are concerned about the judgment of God. They believed that there was a judgment coming, just as Jonah had declared. And so they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That's humility. Putting on sackcloth, taking off your fancy clothes and put on sackcloth and demonstrate you are like the dust of the earth. That's abject humility that they are demonstrating. They recognize they are nothing is what they are saying. I am nothing before the Lord. Notice it's from the greatest to the least. There wasn't, you know, you guys are slaves and you are the lowest of the low. You put it on, we'll remain in our fancy duds. No, all of them. They were stricken. Now, how did this revival take place? Notice it was one man. And as I told you last Lord's Day, Nineveh was a great city. Some estimate the population up around 600,000 people. It was quite extensive in diameter. It was a great city. And they were a vicious people. <clears throat> And the Lord had redeemed them. At least many of them. 
But it's important for us to realize that it was one man with the message of God. It wasn't a program. It wasn't a dog and pony show. It was one man bringing the word of God. This is how the Lord works. Read something on the life of Spurgeon. And Spurgeon, as a young man, walked into a Methodist church one day. It's cold outside. It was in, in London. He came off of the streets and walked into a church building. They were having a church service. He was a teenager at the time. And a man was up in the pulpit because of the weather. The pastor wasn't there. So another one that was in the, was in the congregation was preaching a particular text. And it was, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. Spurgeon recounts that as that the man was not eloquent. He was a country man. He wasn't a man of any learning. He wasn't a great oratory speaker. He just simply read that text. And he read it over and over. And he said, you in the front, you must look to Jesus. And you in the back, you must look to Jesus. And Spurgeon said, and he looked right at me and he said, young man, you must look to Jesus. You've been looking to yourself. You've been looking at yourself. You must look to Jesus. And we would say, wow, it wasn't eloquent. He certainly wasn't exegeting the text very well. God certainly can't use that. God uses crooked sticks to strike a straight blow. And the Lord used this man to bring probably, arguably, one of the greatest preachers in the 18th century to faith. By hearing this one particular message. And here we have a mass revival from Jonah bringing one particular message to the people. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And here is the repentance. The word came to the king. The king of Nineveh arose from his throne and he laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And so that demonstrates from the top down that there was humility going on. Notice how the revival is that which is attended by humility. First, a believing mind. And second, the actions change. Because when the inside of the cup and the dish is cleansed, the outward becomes clean as well. So that's why Jesus says, first cleanse, cleanse the inside of the cup. And it is the Spirit of God's work to do that. And He does that through the ministry of the Word. Don't simply try to change people's behavior. Behavioral modification. That is the, the, the goings-on today in the modern psychology. That's the psychiatric world of our world. The psychobabble of our day. That is the Christian counseling of our day. Throw in a couple of scriptures to baptize something that Skinner or something that Freud taught. And we'll call that biblical teaching. Which it is not. It swallows it up with the humanism that's there. Bring the word of God. That's what cleanses the mind. That's what the spirit of God uses to change the way an individual thinks. And when that happens, beloved, the actions change. The life changes. The direction of the life changes. This is what you find here from this revival. Doesn't the church today need to understand this? Doesn't the church today, don't you and I need to understand that number one, salvation is of the Lord. All glory, honor, praise, and adoration go to Him for the salvation of any sinner. 
First and foremost, glory to the Lord. Do we also not need to learn this message right here, that a preacher is to bring the message of God, not his own. He's not to manipulate. He's not to have programs. He is to bring the Word of God to the hearts of men and let the Holy Spirit do the work that He's going to do. We need to learn that in the church. We need to learn, first and foremost, the mind has to be cleansed. And God alone does that. And the means by which He does that is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we need to have dependence and confidence in the Word of God. Has the church today lost confidence in the Word of God? Has the church today lost desire and hunger and thirst for the Word of God? Well, if attendance at Bible studies is any indication, I would have to say yes. Yes, the church today has lost. If evangelism is any indication, I would say yes, the church has lost hunger and thirst for the things of God. If it's any indication of all of our running after the material things, the indication that we have lost the hunger and thirst for the things of God and chose all the material things to run after, then yes, we've eclipsed the Word. We've lost hunger and desire for the things of God. And then we lament that there is no revival. Is it any wonder? How does God work? We're like the world. We're running after the perishable crown. Things that perish. We're runners in the imperishable crown. That's what we're running for. We need to learn to bring the message. We need to learn the things that are of most importance in our life. Prioritizing our lives. Parents, teach your children to prioritize their lives. They don't know how. You teach them. Reason with them the things that are most important. This is most important. You children, if you haven't heard this at home, I'm going to tell you right now. This is most important for you. That you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All the other things will be added unto you. That's your priority as one who confesses Christ. That is your priority. That is our priority. That's the church's priority. Have we, have we lost sight? Have we been knocked off track? Have we been deceived by the wicked one? Well, how do we bring back the reviving of the church? Well, you're seeing it. Even as the Ninevites got in sackcloth and ashes and humbled themselves before the Lord. That's what we need to do, beloved. We need to recognize the warnings given in Scripture. That if we become lukewarm, then we will be spewed out of the mouth of God. We are called to be a congregation, to be a people that are hot for the things of God. Zealous for the things of God. Active, engaged, participating in the things of God. Reaching out into the communities, Speaking to people about the things of Christ. You say, well I don't know much. Well, shame on you. You ought to know more than you think you do. You do know more than you think you do. But you ought to know more. And your lack of understanding is a lack of Bible studying. Of cultivating the Word of God. 
But let me say, tell them what you know. When I first got saved, I knew next to nothing. It was amazing the discernment that the Holy Spirit would give. I knew that I need to be in a congregation. I knew I need to worship. I knew I needed to be part of a church. But I didn't know. I didn't know anything about denominations. I, I knew nothing. I, I was reared up as a Lutheran. Missouri Synod. That's all I knew was Lutheran name. So I looked in the phone book. I found a Lutheran church. I told Maria, I said, I don't know what these, these letters here mean after this, but we'll go give it a whirl. And we did. And about the third time we were in this congregation, a man stands up and he says, well, we don't have all the book of John. And he went on. I looked at Maria and I said, I, I like no next to nothing. But I know that that ain't right. And we left. Went to another congregation where the man was opening up scripture and teaching the word of God. That's what I wanted to know. Is what did God say in his word? About four years in that congregation, the Lord opened my heart to the doctrines of grace. And then I realized the things that they were saying were Arminian in theology, and that wasn't right. And I left that, and I went to the Reformed Church, and I never looked back from the Reformed Church. And you know what's a sad thing to me? Is that when I was in an Arminian setting, and even though the doctrine wasn't very good, these people were out doing things. They were out in the, in the community. We went to the park. We evangelized in the park. We did things as a congregation. We went to the prisons. We spoke the word of God to those in the prison. We did things. And then I come to the Reformed Church. People do nothing. We have the jewel of the gospel. They do not have the jewel of the gospel. We have the jewel of the gospel and we do nothing. That killed me. I couldn't believe it. Then the moniker, the frozen chosen. Well, now I know where that comes from. Sit on your hands and do nothing. But that is not our calling, beloved. We are to go into the highways and the hedges. You know the truth of the gospel. You know that God is sovereign. You know that He redeems whom He wills. He has mercy on whom He wills. And He hardens whom He wills. That is not your business. Your business is to bring the jewel, the gospel, to the community. To tell people about Jesus. To call them, to compel them to come in. And to believe on the only Savior, Jesus. How are we going to recover that? Well, beloved, get on your face. Humility. Stop presuming the grace of God. Stop thinking it's everybody else's work to do, but not yours. Stop thinking that you just come here to listen to the word and to go and then do nothing. The truth transforms the life. The truth transforms the individual, how they think, and then gives a love and a compassion. Don't tell me you love other people if you're not telling them the truth of the gospel. Don't tell me that you're concerned about your lost relatives when you say nothing. Don't tell me that when you're afraid to say, oh, we don't argue about politics or religion. I didn't tell you to argue. I told you to go and tell them about Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit do what He's going to do. But tell them, beloved, we have got to open our mouth. We have got to be revived. And that comes from the Lord. 
And we have got to recognize we need reviving. We do. I do. You do. Because you know what? We're infectious of one another. Just like the COVID passing from person to person. Your laziness infects another individual to be lazy. Which affects another individual, which affects another, which then permeates through the whole of the congregation. And we're just lazy. We don't do what God called us to do. We need sackcloth. We need ashes on our head. We need humility. This king caused this decree to be published throughout all of Nineveh. And he's talking about the beast, the herd, the flock. Nothing is to eat. Nothing is to drink. Uh, Each man is to cover himself with sackcloth and cry mightily. That's with force, with vigor. That's not with a squeaky voice. That's crying out to God. We find the cry that there are times where it seemed as if the earth was shaking from the cry of the people. This is the cry that he's speaking about here. They cried mightily to God. Yes, everyone turned from his evil ways. Notice, cry to God, turn from your sin, because your sin is a stench in the sight of God. And from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell? This is all they have to go on. Who can tell? Maybe. Maybe God will relent. Maybe God will turn from the wrath in which Jonah had declared. Maybe God will relent so that we not perish. Then in verse 10, God saw their works. God saw them humble. God saw them turn. And here's what it says. They turned from their evil ways and God relented. Now let's talk about that for a minute. Because there are some of you that are misunderstood. You're deceived in your thinking. Because you think that God repents. You think that God changes. You have got to begin with what you know as clear evident truth. And then work downward. You interpret that which is less clear by that which is more clear. And what is clear is that we have in Malachi 3, that I, the Lord thy God, I change not. We find that in Numbers 23 as well. God does not change. He is the ancient of days, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is without turning, without shadow. This is the Lord. He is perfection. Perfection knows no boundaries or no change at all, no degree of change. God doesn't change. God doesn't have a plan B. So you recognize there's some mystery here now, isn't there? God is an essential being, does not change. He has predestined all things known to God from eternity or all of his works. He had predestined the change that goes on in the Ninevites. In his wonder-working power in his way, he had predestined that he would work in them, they would repent, and then he would relent of what he said. God predestined that he would do that. 
Many think in time, right, that in time God saw that they would repent and they said, oh, okay, well, they repented. Well, then I'll turn because I was going to do this. That's not the God of Scripture, beloved. God speaks to us in an anthropomorphic way, in the form of a man for our understanding. This demonstrates a compassion that God does have for mankind. It demonstrates a compassion for those lost and dead in their sins. It demonstrates a compassion for those that don't know their right hand from their left hand. Jesus demonstrates the compassion of God. He came to seek and to save them that are lost. You and I were once lost. We are demonstrations of the compassion of God. The difficulty we have is we really at heart want to be rationalists. We want to be the measure of all things. We want to say that if I can't understand this, that it must not be true. But the fact is that the Ninevites repented. That God so worked in them in such a way that doesn't violate their humanity, but sweetly and softly bent their will to do the will of God. God sovereignly did that. They repented. They truly, genuinely turned from their sins, but it was a result of God working in them, but not destroying their humanity. There's mystery. You and I have repented. You and I have turned thousands of times from our sin. How is that? The working of the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, causing us then to turn away from our sin. That's the work of the Lord, and we give all glory to God. And yet you know that you turned. Now don't come up here and ask me afterwards, well, how does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. I only know that both are true. God does not change. God does not turn. God does not repent in the sense that we think. But he predestines that he would not bring disaster upon them. You know, we read in Habakkuk that he eventually did bring disaster upon the city. Because many did turn and many didn't. Many it was just a formal thing. And God did bring disaster upon them. But for our purposes... God predestined that he would not bring disaster upon them. This is, this is hope. This is hope in evangelism. This is hope for the, the vilest of sinners. God demonstrates this right from the garden, doesn't he? The day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve don't die physically. They died spiritually. But they didn't die. It was hundreds of years later. Adam lived 930 years. Then he died. But there was a long period of compassion that the Lord came to them. It's the business of the Lord to save sinners. Who else is there? What a loving God. That God is loving, beloved. That God is compassionate. That God is long-suffering. How should you be with those with whom you've been praying or talking for years? How should you be to the vilest? Is there anyone that you would say, they don't deserve to receive the gospel? You and I don't deserve to receive the gospel. 
But we are to be in compassion, the gospel. Bringing it to them. Telling them of Jesus. Salvation is of the Lord. He will have mercy and he will harden whom he chooses. That's none of our business. Our business, highways and hedges with the good news and compelling them to come in. Come to Jesus. Jesus alone will pardon. Jesus alone will forgive. Jesus alone is the one who then quenches the wrath of God against the sins of all those who trust in Him. Jesus alone gives peace and rest. Jesus alone forgives all of your sins. This is what we say. This is what we do. We go out and we proclaim this. This is what we find here with Jonah. And clearly the Ninevites turned and spoke to those of their own community about this. And therefore we find the sackcloth and ashes. Beloved, let us be compassionate. And let us bring the gospel to a dying world. Let us humble ourselves before God. We, we so desperately need to humble ourselves before God. To know who you are before the true and living God. And we need to pray that God revives us. Let's not look at your neighbor, everybody else out there. Let's look at each one of us. Revive me, O oh God. Reform me. Bring me back to the teaching of God's word. Help me to worship and serve you in accordance with your word. Revive me, O oh God. Do this work within me that I might be used then as a conduit to those who do not know you. This is the call of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we pray?